welcome again uh, to Morning Hour Chapel this morning. We're so happy that you are here. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of who God is. Uh, we've seen that God is hope. Um, and we learned about the sons of Korah who refused to stand with their father when he stood against Moses. And, of course, by doing so, he had stood against God. Um, and they uh, wrote some psalms of hope about the salvation of God, about his mercy, about his forgiveness. Um, and we've seen that God is with us and that he is for us. In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the story of David and Goliath to talk about how God is with us and how God is for us. And this morning we're going to look at another eternal truth about God. And that eternal truth is that God is sovereign. And sovereign sounds like a really big churchy word. How many of you use the word sovereign in your everyday language? Not too many of us, unless you're a history teacher. Um, but um, it does, it sounds like something that The word sovereign and the idea of God's sovereignty is just uh, scattered throughout Scripture. And a sovereign is simply a supreme ruler who exercises power without limitation. And the sovereign's power is beyond any power of others to interfere, any, any power of others to dictate how things should be. The sovereign is the supreme ruler. Ruler, And when we say that God is sovereign, it means that he is the supreme authority with absolute power over all things, all of his creation. And we read about God's sovereignty often in the Bible. Just a couple of examples. Uh, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We see these ideas of God's sovereignty. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, we read all the inhabitants of the earth, that's us. That's everything. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And we read this passage in Daniel and we see all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. How many of you like the idea that you are nothing? Any nothing people here this morning? No, not too many of us feel like uh, we want to be counted as nothing. But what Daniel's saying here is that in the scheme of things, in the scheme of power, in the scheme of authority, we have none. God has it all. And if you think about this idea of we have no power, we have no authority, for God to still love us, for God to still want us, for God to want to have a relationship with Nothing. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a little special in the eyes of God. Because He makes me something. He makes you something. But we have some questions about this whole sovereignty thing. And again, coming from a very human perspective. If God 
can do whatever he wants. He's got absolute power. He's got absolute authority. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Then do we really have free will? Can God make us do whatever he wants? And we're going to start exploring a book of the Bible that suggests that, yes, we can exercise our free will. We have a choice whether to obey God or to disobey God. And we all know this. And we know that disobedience to God is what we call sin. And we are free to make those decisions. But as we learn throughout life, from a very young age... Some of our decisions, actually all of our decisions, have consequences. All of the things that we decide to do will affect us, will affect other people, and depending on whether those decisions are good or bad, they will affect them to the good or not to the good. And the book that we're going to be looking at this morning and for the next couple of weeks is the book of Jonah. How many of you have ever heard the story of Jonah? Okay. How many of you have stopped with Jonah was swallowed by a big fish because he ran away from God? And that's all you know. A couple of you. Yes. Some people, a lot of people. This is one of those stories like David and Goliath. Right? David and Goliath, everybody knows. But they only know part of the story. And in Jonah, most people know part of the story. Jonah ran away from God. He got swallowed by a big whale. I think he survived. I'm not sure. But that's pretty much the way most people know it. And also, just a side note, probably not a whale. Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. The story of Jonah is about God's sovereignty and also about our free will. And it's also about God's mercy. And it's also, sadly, about how some of God's people react negatively to God's mercy, especially when it's shown to other people. And we're going to take a look. We're going to start reading right away in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of, uh, of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So, Jonah, the prophet, is being told by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So one of the things that we can understand right away is that Nineveh is not God's people. Nineveh is not part of Israel, and of course, back in that time, Israel was considered God's people. But we're not, we're not talking about God's people. We're talking about what they might have called heathens or Gentiles. And the first thing we think of is, well, why does God care about them? Why does God want me to go and preach against these Gentiles? And Jonah didn't want to go. Because Nineveh was not very nice to their enemies. And Israel was an enemy of Assyria. Nineveh was known to impale Hebrew captives on giant spears and leave them out in the sun for everybody to see. 
Nineveh was known to make amulets and necklaces out of human heads that they had collected from Israel. They were not very nice people. They wanted to see Israel destroyed. We read here that God wants to send his prophet, a Hebrew, an enemy, to go and speak out against the city, to call out against it. Nineveh, you're screwing up. Now, usually when God calls a prophet and asks them to go to a city to call out against it, what he's getting them ready for is destruction. Basically, the message is repent or be destroyed. And Jonah did not like God's plan. Jonah did not like it because he also knew that when he went to call out against the city for its sin, he was also going to have to call for it to repent. And that wasn't really the big problem. The big problem was that Jonah didn't want them to repent. Jonah wanted to see fire rained down on this city. And he wanted to sit there with popcorn and have a front row seat. That's how much Jonah hated the Assyrians. Jonah didn't like God's plan, and we read Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, as if that's possible. He went down to Joppa, he found a ship going to Tarshish. Ah, I doubled those again. So, he paid the fare, he went down into it, went to uh, go to Tarshish, and he went down into the bottom of the boat. He went down into the boat. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? See if you guys are paying attention this morning. Why? Because he hated them. He also did not want to see his head become a necklace. Right? For one thing, he didn't want God to forgive them. He wanted them destroyed. This past week, um, Wendy and I saw this, uh, this film that came out a while ago. I don't know if you've seen it. Jesus Revolution. Anybody have a chance to see Jesus Revolution? It's the story of uh, Pastor Chuck Smith out in California. Um, set back in the late 60s, early 70s, Chuck Smith's a pastor of Calvary Chapel. Um, and he had this radical idea that he should allow hippies into his church. Barefoot, long-haired, jean-wearing, flower-child hippies into his church. Now, he didn't always think this. And as a matter of fact, Chuck Smith said it in an interview at one point that hippies were parasites upon society. Have anybody lived through the 60s, early 70s? Yeah, raise your hand. Come on, you can, it's okay. We won't, ju we won't judge you. How many of you remember hippies? How many of you were hippies? No. Even if I was, I would never admit it. These long-haired hippie people wanted to come to church. And Chuck Smith, at first, he's like, no, 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 no. But then, as he got to know some of them, as he got to hear their stories, and as he got to see their hunger for God, he said, hippies, you can come to my church. One of the first churches on the West Coast to allow this to happen. 
And many of them did. They came to the church. Many of them repented. They stopped doing drugs. They stopped drinking. They started um, going out into the community and, and handing out tracts and Bibles and talking about Jesus. And they were almost not even let in. In fact, the elder board of the church was very upset when the hippies came because their, their, their bare feet were ruining the new carpet. That was, that was the story. Their bare feet are ruining the new carpet. We don't want them in here. You know what happened the very next week, according to the movie, according to the interviews? Chuck Smith sat outside of the church and washed the feet of every hippie that came into the church, washed them clean, invited them in. That was the uh, time when two of the elders left the church with their families because they didn't want the hippies there. And it wasn't about the carpet. So, when we think about this story of Jonah, Jonah did not share the same conviction about Ninevites as Chuck Smith shared about hippies. He didn't want to see him, he didn't want to see him come to church. He wanted to see him burn. And he made a conscious decision to get as far away as possible. I'm going to show you something here. Here's a map, and hopefully you can see it. I know it's kind of tiny. But you can see uh, where Jonah is. That's approximately where Jonah was. And Jonah was about 550 miles away from Nineveh. It's a long trek, but he's there. Instead of going to Nineveh, 550 miles away, he goes about 100 miles south to Joppa. Joppa is where he was going to catch the boat to go to Tarshish. And he had already decided, I'm going to Tarshish. Do you know why he was going to Tarshish? Why did he choose that? Because Tarshish is way on the other side of the map. Basically as far away from Nineveh as he could possibly get. This was a conscious decision by a prophet of God to say, no. God, I disagree with your message. I disagree with your mission. I am getting away. And that's where we stand. This is what happened. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, but God really wanted him to. And so we continue reading, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah's decision caused financial hardship for these sailors, for these mariners, they were getting ready to travel 2,500 miles to drop off a big load of cargo in Tarshish. Now they had to throw it all overboard just so they wouldn't sink. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? I won't say anything about Wendy. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
Anybody able to sleep through thunderstorms? I pretty much can unless like the storm like really is loud and it like rattles the windows, right? Or it sounds like an explosion outside of your window. I can usually sleep through thunderstorms. Wendy cannot sleep through thunderstorms. But Jonah, not only was he going through a thunderstorm where the, the wind and the thunder and the crash and everything, but the boat was doing one of these things, right? Rocking back and forth. I could not have slept through that, but here's Jonah. Ah. Rock-a-bye, baby, in the treetop. And of course, the captain of the ship was a little miffed. Get up! We're all calling out to our God. You call out to your God. And then the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah didn't even tell the sailors, yeah, it might be me. I might be the problem. He didn't say anything. They had to find out on their own. And of course, we know casting lots was a way that they discovered things back in that time. But they find out. And they say to him, tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? In the middle of a storm, it sounds like they want to have a nice civil conversation with Jonah. That's probably not the way it was said. Who are you? Why are you here? Why is this happening? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the sailors knew who he was talking about. Then they were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, they didn't have an idea of what the power of the Lord was. They didn't know what the sovereignty of God was. All they knew was that this God of Jonah's was going to kill them. They were going to die in this ship. See, they thought that their gods and the Lord God had about the same amount of power which really was none, right? People would pray to their gods all the time. Nothing would happen. But they saw the power of the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Jonah. And they started to get it. They started to understand that, yes, there is a God and that he is powerful. They've seen this power. They're more and more afraid. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It wasn't bad enough that the storm had come up. It is getting worse and worse and worse, this ship is going to go down. 
He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. Can you imagine? You're on this boat, this ship, and it's tossing this way and that way. What should we do? Throw me overboard. I'm sorry, what? I didn't hear that. Throw me overboard. That ought to do it. Dude, we're not going to throw you overboard. We're not going to kill you. Come on, guys. Uh, I must have skipped one. So nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew even more and more tempestuous. I read that one. For I know that it is me that this great tempest has come upon you. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. They knew that by throwing Jonah overboard, they were committing murder to save their own lives. And they cried out to Jonah's God, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. And here's the message. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. A group of sailors setting off for on a 2,500 mile journey Cargo in hand, ready to make some money, get caught in a storm created by God. And they come to this truth. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Whether Jonah knew it or not, what Jonah was doing here, he was speaking prophecy to the men. Throw me overboard, the storm will stop. This was a witness to the power of God, and it was also a witness from Jonah to the mercy of God to these men. Throw me overboard, your troubles will be over. And they threw him overboard, and the storm stopped. The sailors witnessed firsthand the sovereignty and the mercy of the Lord God. And we read that the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This event caused sailors who worshipped other gods to worship the one true God. And not just then. They made a sacrifice to the Lord right then. And they made vows. They said this is not just a one-time thing. This offering is not just a, hey, thanks God for stopping the storm. 
This was an offering that said, God, we know that you are sovereign. We know that you, the one true God, are God. And they made vows to live their lives for the one true God. And we never hear from the sailors again. We don't know what happened to them. But we can be pretty sure that this event shook them up a little bit. They throw Jonah overboard. The storm stops. You believe that God is sovereign? And I want you to really think about that question because this is one of those knee-jerk things, right? Do you believe that the Lord is sovereign? Amen, yes, I believe it. Do you live it? Do I live it? Is God truly the authority over everything in our lives? Do you believe God when he said through the prophet Jeremiah, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. This is my creation, and I will do with it whatever I want. Do you believe when he told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Because this is the message that God wanted to show Jonah. I will be gracious on the Assyrians. I will be gracious on the city of Nineveh. Just because I will. And it is not for you to question that. If I want these people to have the opportunity to repent, they're going to have the opportunity to repent. But they're going to retain their free will. They might not repent. But I want the message to be sent to them. I want the message to be preached to them. A lot of people think that the idea that God is sovereign is kind of not great for them. They don't want somebody to be in charge of them. God, you're not the boss of me. And they live like that. And they have this mistaken notion that because just because God is all-powerful means that he's just going to rain fire and throw lightning bolts and if he gets mad, he's just going to kill you. And that's not who God is, because next week we're also going to see that God is merciful. Yes, he has absolute power. But he also has absolute wisdom. And with absolute wisdom comes absolute mercy. And with absolute mercy, God shows his unending love 
And these are, these are hard things to think about and hard things to wrap our heads around. Some people think if God is all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants, then he's not a loving God because a loving God would not let dot, dot, dot happen. If God can do anything he wants, why doesn't he eliminate cancer? If God can do anything he wants, why doesn't he stop wars? If God can do anything he wants, why didn't he keep that drunk driver's car from starting? film was released on July 4th this year. It's called Sound of Freedom. I don't know if anybody's had the opportunity to see this yet. I highly recommend it, at least for the adults. Um, parents, if you have teenagers, look into the film. See if it's something you think your teenagers would be able to watch. It is a difficult film to watch. It's about this man named Tim Ballard. He's a special agent for Homeland Security Investigations, and he ends up working to rescue children who have been kidnapped and sold into, uh, into slavery. Not an easy film to watch. On social media, people are talking about this film a lot, and of course the Christians love it, and the non-Christians hate it. And a lot of the comments that I see on social media, well, why doesn't God just stop all of these crimes from happening? Why doesn't God just stop this altogether? If he's all-powerful, why doesn't he just eradicate evil? If God is loving, why does he allow evil? Why does he allow suffering? These are questions that people are asking. Do they sound like reasonable questions to you? They sound like reasonable questions to me. And as a Christian, I need to learn the nature of God so that I might be able to offer some sort of an answer. God is all-powerful. Why? Have you ever prayed that? God, why haven't you healed my cancer? Why didn't you keep that drunk driver off the road? Why Weren't you there when this horrible thing happened? And we pray these things and we think these things because we are human. Why didn't God stop Jonah from getting on the boat? Why didn't he just pluck Jonah up with his fingers, place him in Nineveh the way he wanted? Simple answer is because God does what he does for his purpose. How many of us understand God's purpose? We can't. We can't understand everything that God does and the way that he does it because we're not God. But we do know what God's will is. And ultimately, God's will is to see everyone repent and come back to him. That is God's will. That's it. God wants everyone to return to him. And every action that God takes is done with that ultimate goal of rescuing humanity. And we read in scripture things like, Suffering creates perseverance. And perseverance creates character. 
And we love those verses unless we're suffering. Unless we're having to persevere through something. But everything that God does, all of his actions, ultimately, he's doing those things so that people, free-willed people, will make a decision to repent and come back to him. And guess what? They can say no. They can say no. But the things that God does are things to try to get them to say yes. In Jonah chapter 1, God's actions ultimately led to a crew of sailors to know him, to recognize his sovereignty, his authority. And they repented. They turned back to God. And this wasn't a surprise to God. It wasn't a happy happenstance. This, God knows this is what happens sometimes when people see his power, when people experience his sovereignty. And when they understand what it is. God's actions also led not to destroying Jonah for his disobedience, which is something that God could have done in his sovereignty. But he didn't. And we read in Jonah 1.17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And this verse still speaks of the sovereignty of God. He appointed a fish. He told the fish where to go. He told the fish what to do. And the fish did it. Maybe fish are smarter than humans. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And we're going to leave Jonah in the belly of the fish for this week. He'll be okay, don't worry. But as we conclude this morning, I know and I can see in some of your faces, you have a lot of questions. You have a lot of, like, just wondering, what, what does it actually mean that God is sovereign? But not in the big, churchy, religious, what does it mean that God is sovereign? What does it mean for me that God is sovereign? What does it mean for me, a person of faith, a person who has repented, who has turned to God, what does it mean to me that God has absolute power and absolute authority over all of his creation, including me? These are questions I want us to think about this week. What are the implications for my life? What does it mean for our faith? 
to understand that God is sovereign. What does it mean for the way we live? When we come to understand that God is in absolute control of everything. That he can do what he wants. What does that mean? I want you to think about those things this week. Maybe read the book of Jonah. Maybe do a little word study on sovereignty or the sovereignty of God this week while you're reading your Bible, while you're doing your devotions. Think about what it really means for God to be sovereign in us, in our lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you. God, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that in this world of turmoil and chaos and suffering, that you know what's going on. That you have a plan. And Father, you've told us in Scripture that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. But Father, you also told us in the Psalms, what is man that you are mindful of him? Father, as we think about your sovereignty, let us also think about your love. If you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, why do you love us? And Father, we won't know the answer to that question fully until we are in your presence. But right now, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have had mercy on us. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus Christ so that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance and to eternal life. We thank you for these things, Father. We ask as we go into this time of communion that you would put into us a heart of reflection. You would put into us a heart to know your love and your mercy and your sovereignty through this act of communion. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, as we prepare for communion, one of the things that we can and probably should think about is the sovereignty of God. One of the things that we can and we should think about is the fact that God could have done anything at any time. He could have destroyed the earth like that, but he didn't. He came in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He lived as a human with everything that that means. He lived with us. He taught us. He got tired like us. One time he got angry like us that we read about. And then he 
died for us so that we would know repentance, so that we would know eternal life. And the celebration of communion is the celebration of that sacrifice that Jesus, the human, made for us and that God, the Father, gave to us. This morning as we take communion, I want to take just a minute or two have a time of silent prayer. If there's anything that you need to confess to God, this is the time to do that. As we reflect on Jesus' death this morning, again, we can ask a lot of questions. Why did he have to die? Why couldn't God find another way? fact is, this is the way that God chose, and we are thankful for it. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat it, do it in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. God tells us in the Old Testament that the life is in the blood. And it's Jesus' blood shed for us that gives us new life. After supper, Jesus took some wine. And after he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples and said, Take and drink this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And it is shed for you for the forgiveness of many. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me, blood of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember Jesus' death until he comes. We can also remember Jesus' resurrection, his defeat over death, his promise of eternal life for us. Would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his teaching. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for his obedience. We thank you for his willingness to take on our sin, the only sin that Jesus would ever know was ours. Father, we thank you. We ask as we leave this place this morning that we will continue to remember who Jesus is remember who you are and to remember to be obedient to you and to share the gospel with anyone that we come into contact with by word or by deed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When the roll is called up yonder, God wants to see everybody there. He wants to read every name on earth. That is why he does what he does. As you go out this week, look for opportunities to share your testimony, to share your witness, to share Jesus Christ and the things that he has done with those people who
don't yet know him. You do not know what God will do. You do not know how God will work. But it is God's will that those people come to repentance just as we have. God bless you this week.